Hi, I'm Dr. Jay Lee Spian from Australia. This podcast series is part of the International Association for Suicide Prevention's 31st World Congress on the Gold Coast and sponsored by EveryMind, a leading Australian institute dedicated to the prevention of mental ill health and the prevention of suicide, and our MindFrame program aimed at supporting safe and effective communication. Welcome to this first podcast from the International Suicide Prevention Congress. I'm Jay Lee Skian, and I'm joined by a number of panellists who are also from Australia. I'm a great supporter of the International Association for Suicide Prevention, and I usually attend the conferences with vigour and enthusiasm, trying to get myself to as many sessions and out-of-session catch-ups as I can. I'm usually also pretty prolific on Twitter and often blog during and after the conference because it's so important for people who've been to different sessions at the conference, but also those who don't have the ability to get to the Congress to be able to share in some way with the information that we're sharing. And so thanks to IS for putting extra resources into communications this year from the Congress. I think going fully virtual for the first time is both challenging, but also provides a lot of opportunity for us to connect some of the key learnings and key discussions over the next 12 months. And so people can kind of dip in and dip out of the Congress and hopefully the people listening to the podcast might kind of give them an insight of some extra things that they might want to look into in the program. Um, so I've got three fantastic and diverse guests who are going to be joining me. The first is John Brogdon, who is very well known in Australia, but he's the chair of Lifeline Australia. He's a business leader. He's a former politician. And he's also very generously shared his living experience of suicidal ideation and I think really helped to break down some of that stigma associated with suicide here in Australia. So we're really privileged to have someone of his calibre joining us on this podcast. My second guest on this podcast is Professor Mafanwi Maple. I'll probably refer to her as MIF. She's a professor of social work at the University of New England in Australia, which is one of our rural-based universities. She is a fabulous researcher and a research translator uh, with a particular focus on research into lived experience of suicide and integrating lived experience into practice and policy. And also having lived and worked in a rural area, she's had quite a bit of leadership and focus on rural and regional Australia. So I think we'll be looking forward to her perspectives. And our third guest is the winner of the early career researcher, Putcher Kutcher, I'm going to get it wrong now, Patrick Kutcher, that actually went on last night in the opening of the, of the Congress. So it's Dr. Louise Lasala, who is a early career researcher based at Origin in Melbourne in Australia. And she's leading and working on some really unique resources that support young people um, to talk about suicide online called ChatSafe. So we'll get to talk to her a little bit about that. So without further ado, I'm going to throw my first question to you, John. So in Australia, we've come together in 2021 after what we could say is a pretty devastating 2020 and 2021. We started with some uh, devastating bushfires and then we've been through multiple kind of waves of COVID, lockdown, recovery, non-recovery. And we heard Rory speak in the opening plenary about some of the global impacts of COVID-19 um, and what we may have seen nationally, particularly in high-income countries. As the chair of Lifeline, we know Lifeline's been right on the front line in Australia with supporting our communities. What have you seen and heard from our communities in the last year or two? Well, Charlie, just to add to the um, onslaught of natural and other disasters, of course, we had an earthquake in the southeast corner of Australia today. So 
From our perspective, we've seen an extraordinary increase in our calls, the likes of which not only we've never seen, but we never predicted. So two years ago, we were doing about an average of 2,500 calls a day. And just uh, a few weeks ago now, we topped 3,600 calls a day. So that's a 40% plus increase in our, our daily call rate. Thankfully, because of wonderful volunteers and some extra funding, we've been able to maintain and in fact, increase our call answer rate. So we're getting the most of our calls and that's very important as well. Interestingly, Jaylee, the reasons people call us has not particularly changed. A few things have changed. The length of the calls have increased and the intensity, if you like, the anger on the calls and the emotion on the calls has increased as well. So calls are up, the calls are longer and the emotional nature of them has got hotter, if I can use that phrase. Of course, as we all know, the flip side of that in Australia uh, has seen a reduction in suicides and we're a crisis line, but we're best known, I guess, for suicide prevention. And we know, as you do, the demand for mental health services in Australia have gone through the roof, but suicide has dropped. And I think we need to study that hard. I know a lot of people, a lot of people want to say that's an aberration, but we have to find out why it happened, because it's not an aberration. It's in excess of 5 and 6% in some of our big states. So why is that? What are the good and the bad? I appreciate fully it's a very sectored response. I mean, it's Australia's an advanced nation, high income nation. We had a pretty good COVID in 2020. We've had a less good COVID in 2021. So we've seen this increase in calls, uh, the likes of which we've never seen before. 10 years ago, I would have said that was a disaster, what's happening in Australia. My view in the middle of COVID is it's actually a good thing because people are hearing and heeding the message to reach out and get help. Yeah, it's certainly one of those challenges, isn't it? That um, And I think Rory spoke about this in one of the opening keynotes, which is, you know, so far from high-income countries, what we could probably assess is that suicide rates of either plateaued or gone down slightly in some countries, although perhaps not for all cohorts, perhaps not for Correct. young people and perhaps not for those who would more adverse disadvantage um, socially or, or economically. But it is interesting he also pointed to the fact that one of the things we need to do is make sure we keep our messaging somewhat hopeful through some of that. So how do we kind of get the balance between responding, I guess, to the elevated distress, but also not catastrophizing in a way that might increase that distress somewhat. What disappointed me, if I can be honest, about Rory's presentation is it was completely suspicious of the decrease in suicides and tried to, frankly, to explain it away that it may have helped some people, but it hurt many more people than it helped. And I don't think that's helpful because it's not hopeful. We have to be hopeful. One of my growing criticisms of the mental health sector in Australia, and I think it's echoed in many places around the world, is we're all about the bad news. We're not about any good news or any hope. And if you look at other areas of health and health research, they are so good about pushing a message of hope. You know, uh, this is a very Australian comment, Jaylee, but you know, once a week, usually on the Sunday night television news, I can guarantee you there will be a story about a new drug or a new process or a new treatment for cancer. And it's giving more people hope, more people living longer, fewer people dying, et cetera, et cetera. Where is our equivalent? Because we have to give people hope. I'm not, I'm not an academic. I have lived experience. I have depression. I have suicidal ideation. I've had very public suicide attempt. And my story is very public in Australia. But 
where are the stories of hope that you'll get through this? Because I think we tend to focus so much on the negative. So I think without in any way discounting the reality that COVID has not had the same experience not just simply in our physical health and our lived experience of, of, of life, let alone our living experience of mental illness. It's been very different around the world, but there have been some amazing things happening and we need to focus on how did that happen? What, what's the special source in why that happened? Is it replicable? Is it sustainable? And how do we research to find that out? Because we have to give people hope. We just can't be negative all the time about what's wrong with mental illness. We have to show people how the system is getting better and how we're doing better research and finding better answers and coming out the other end. Julie Gillard spoke yesterday of the Wayback Service. I went online afterwards and spent some time looking at, obviously, the positive promotions on their website, but they're fantastic. They're absolutely fantastic. So we are doing good things in mental health in Australia. We are doing good things in suicide prevention. We need to be hopeful about them and spread a message of hope that you can get through this when you reach out for help. A bit of a message there for our global media as well as those of us who work with the media and also talking about the, the kind of cutting-edge work that's being done. Um, They're part before... of the problem. They're part of the problem, <laughs> the media. No, they are. They don't want to sell the good news stories. I don't, it's, it's exasperating for me because there is good news to be told and the importance of good news is it gives people hope. Right. Well, what I'm going to do when we get to her, I'll get to ask Louise around how young people are kind of taking some of that hope back for themselves. Uh, one more question before I um, pass on to another of our panellists, John. I'm, I think we've got a bit used to politicians talking about mental health and suicide prevention here in Australia, but I've been to a lot of international congresses and it wasn't lost on me that this would have been a unique experience on day one of this congress, is that we had the current serving Prime Minister of Australia we had the minister assisting the prime minister on mental health and suicide prevention and we had a former prime minister of australia who is the chair of beyond blue all talking about and making time for the discussion about suicide prevention and what we do as a global community and we had christine morgan who's the prime minister's suicide prevention advisor do a brief address and we'll be back on day two so I guess my question to you, particularly as someone who works with government and someone who has worked in politics, you know, how do we kind of get what Julia, I think, mentioned was making sure that our strategy and investments in suicide prevention aren't limited to an election cycle? And I think that's the challenge that a lot of us are trying to grapple with, regardless of where you come from in suicide mm. prevention. Well, firstly, Jaylee, I'm an ex-politician uh, in hope of full recovery. I think I'm on the way to recovery, hoping the medication works. The other thing I'd say is just by coincidence, when I was the leader of the opposition in New South Wales, back in about 2004, I appointed, and it just happened to be historically, the first ever opposition or government, in my case, opposition spokesperson for mental health, who is now the Premier or the Governor of New South Wales, Gladys Berejiklian. And that has been replicated around the country, but not around the world. Winston Churchill had a great quote, which was, democracy is the worst system of government except for all the others in the world. Well, Australia probably has the worst mental health system except for all the others in the world. We do incredibly well. And we probably forget just how advanced we are in this debate 
when you have, as exactly as you said, the Prime Minister and a former Prime Minister agreeing furiously about the need to move to a zero suicide target. The woman I just spoke of, Gladys Berejiklian, the Premier of New South Wales, she has a 20% reduction target in her manifesto. So it is a very advanced, mature conversation in Australia. And we've taken it out of the dark corners and, and listening today to some presentations where we look at very high suicide rates in parts of Asia where family shame is still such a big issue. We have turned a corner. We have a lot to help other countries do that, not to teach them. I don't look down upon countries where they're still moving along. We were there 30 or 40 years ago, which is a sand dropped in the desert of time in terms of transition. So we are privileged in Australia. And when the candidates to lead Australia for the last couple of elections, both get out there and devote their time to policies on suicide prevention and improve mental health. We've arrived, we've arrived, and the doors are wide open for us. There's so much more to happen. We, we, we haven't solved the problem, but we've pushed the doors wide open on the problem. Right. I'm going to bring you in here, Miff, particularly because I know you were one of the people who were supporting the work of the Prime Minister's Suicide Prevention Advisor, Christine Morgan, on her expert advisory group. And I think as part of that process, what we heard a lot was the need for whole of government which means all of our kind of jurisdictions of government in Australia, if any other global communities are like ours and got multiple governments. And so all portfolios of government and all types of governments working together on suicide prevention, but not forgetting the people and the communities when we're thinking about suicide prevention more broadly. And I thought two of our kind of national leaders were speaking in the opening plenary last night. So Professor Pat Dudgeon from an Indigenous suicide prevention perspective and talking about, you know, Indigenous governance and determination and community-led approaches. And I thought Bronnie Edwards um, really cut through talking about actually why lived experience needs to be central to the way in which we design. And I think she talked about compassionate curiosity in terms of how we're all going to transition from where we are now to where we need to be. And so I just want to bring you in in terms of, you know, how do you think, what are the sort of things you reflected on from that opening plenary, but also how do you think we can bring these different elements of government lived experience services and communities together? Yeah, thanks, Jaylee. Um, well, I guess the first thing from my point of view was how exciting it was to see the, the power shift to having people with lived experience and being empowered to talk about their experiences on the plenary stage. Up until recently, I was chair of the special interest group for bereavement and postvention for IASP. And certainly every Congress, we were fighting for more space on the plenary stage for lived experience, first person voice to be privileged in a way in which you need to be able to um, you know, bring that voice further forward and in line with those who have the kind of professional power and voice. So I guess first things was, I was just super excited to see that. And I think you know, across particularly both Pat Dudgeon and Ronnie Edwards plenaries, really talking about the the need and and still a need in Australia, even though we're doing well, but across the globe to start to um, address that balance. It, it wasn't that long ago that we didn't have anyone talking about lived experience of suicide within conferences. I know certainly 20 years ago when I started in this field, 
I actually felt really excluded from suicide prevention and I often went to the grief and bereavement conferences to talk about lived experience of suicide rather than in the suicide sector because it was really dominated by a very medical model and now to hear um, across all three of the plenary speakers on the opening night and the politicians all talking about the importance of hearing that um, first-hand experience and I guess our challenge now that we've had this more watershed kind of moment, I guess, in the field, is really to start thinking about who has that voice and the power behind that voice and how best do we really empower those who are still very disempowered and aren't the voices we're hearing. And I think one of the points that Rory made in his plenary whilst talking about, and John's covered some of the the issues around COVID and that we don't know yet, and we must remain curious about what is going on in relation to COVID and the impact on suicide. But one of the points that Rory did make is that COVID hasn't affected us all equally. And obviously there's different experiences in different places, geographic places across the globe, but also amongst different subgroups within our population. And we know, we well know the social determinants of health and that we have huge disparity between the way in which health systems are experienced by different people and the reaching out for help, depending on who you are and what your background is, looks very different. And so to hear Pat Dudgeon and then Lilani Darwin this morning talking about the huge strides that have been made by our First Nations people in Australia who are way overrepresented in all indicators on the social terms of health and obviously in suicide, is such an important time to remember that there are still people without voice and how do we how do we really think about those power structures and the way in which people are both empowered to talk and disempowered. And I guess from my point of view, it's obviously around stigma, but the way in which people now aren't as ashamed to talk about their own experiences of suicide, whether that be from their own personal suicidal ideation or behaviours, caring for or supporting somebody through those experiences and bereaved by suicide, or what we found in the work for the National Suicide Prevention Advisor last year is that it's uncommon to have only one experience. And most people have many experiences that overlap. And how do we best understand the nuance across different groups within an emerging field in Australia and still to emerge in other places? So for me, that's the challenge now really is it's fantastic that we've got this far. But when we look at the data that we collected in some of the Christine Morgan's report, for example, going back through 1800 open responses about the reasons for suicide and the huge complexity. And often it does start in early childhood where people are already experiencing or even pre that person's life, huge traumas, huge disadvantage, structural barriers that mean that they aren't starting on the same level playing field and that that then plays out through their life and can play into suicidal ideation, behaviours and death. But I also wanted to pick up on John's point about hope. People live with amazing resilience and it's one of the areas that we're not really exploring very well yet. There's small pockets of research around post-traumatic growth, but when we look at the complex stories of people's lives and how they've managed to continue to thrive, through huge challenges and issues and barriers, 
it's really remarkable. And I think that's an area now that we really need to, you know, delve into and have that curiosity about how can we also learn from those people who have managed to find new meaning and purpose in life and feed that back into our prevention services? Because they're people who have looked this in the face and have all of the learnings possible and now they are the people who should be informing prevention activities. And so I think there's still so much more to do. And as a researcher, I guess, you know, I naively thought 20 years ago that I'd find some answers one day and all I do is just find more questions. And so, you know, watching the early career researchers last night, and obviously we have the winner on this panel, there's some amazing rising stars and there's long careers ahead of them to work in these much more collaborative and much more equal ways of involving firsthand experience. That's great. And if, I must say, um, to share, I, I shed more than one tear uh, last year when I was reading the stories, actually, that your team and others had captured for the National Suicide Prevention Task Force. But those she tears weren't necessarily shed because of hopelessness, but actually because of the hope and the generosity that people had to share actually what were really difficult experiences. And so you can't read or be in the same room as those experiences and not feel in some way hopeful that things actually can be different. And so I'm like you, I feel that there's been a really positive shift in all of our conferences, but particularly the International Congress, because certainly in the early day, more as a practitioner than a researcher, I felt like I was a slightly different person attending those conferences. And now we've got much more diversity, which is great. Before I go over to Louise, maybe just from you again, if any kind of key tips on how we can kind of best support those rising stars and early career researchers, because I do think new research methodologies, new ways of thinking about research are potentially going to uh, help bridge that divide between groups or between research practice, community and lived experience. Yeah, I think it's a great question, Jay Lee. I think that it's one of the real challenges when you're starting out is how to work out your networks and your relationships and your collaborations. And research now is not just collaborative between researchers, but also with people with lived experience and with the people who are developing, designing and delivering services to those who need them. And I think that one of the really key messages is about developing networks. And I guess it's one of the unfortunate things about this Congress happening virtually is that it's much harder for early career researchers, I think, to meet some of the people that they might have read their papers or heard about a service that was being delivered in another part of the world and to actually be able to meet. One of the myths, though, I think, is that people that publish or who are you know, presenting plenaries are not approachable. Everybody is approachable and everybody wants to hear from those who are just starting out on their journey and maybe you won't get a response straight away. Don't give up. You know, we're all really interested in some of those new ideas. And I think listening to some of the work that was presented last night and obviously over the course of the next few days, there's some incredible young new ideas. And that doesn't necessarily mean people are young. They're new to the sector. And that's where we should be looking for new ideas. We all get a bit stuck in what we're doing and how we're doing it and why we're doing it and stuck in the language that we use. All of that always needs to be challenged and that comes from, you know, new people in the field. So certainly reaching out and reaching across the globe, all of our email addresses are pretty easy to find or find on Twitter, you know, reach out and talk about your ideas. Don't be afraid of reaching out. 
and doing that and hearing what other people are thinking. And for me, being challenged with new ideas is one of the most exciting things about, you know, seeing more junior researchers coming into the field. So yeah, reach out, roll up your sleeves, put on your brave face and um, and reach out to others, I think is really the best way to get started and keep moving and changing and shifting through your career because the landscape keeps changing everywhere. Great. Thanks, Miff. So excellent opportunity for me to bring in Dr. Louise Lasala uh, and talking about kind of old ways and new ways. People who know some of my work, or I guess some of my research work is focused on media reporting and public communication about suicide um, and our mindframe guidelines here in Australia and our work. But Louise, along with other researchers at Origin, have been leading on some work focused on empowering young people to talk about suicide online with ChatSafe. And she did the Petra Kutcher last night and actually won. So it was a fantastic early career researcher event. I'm glad I was at home with my blankie on and under <laughs> the pressure of actually presenting. You did fantastic, Louise, but so did everyone. So Firstly, do you want to tell us a little bit about the Petra Kutcher last night and also a little bit about your research? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Shaylee. So, so for those that don't know, Petra Kutcher means chit-chat in Japanese. And so the format of the Petra Kutcher presentations was that you had 20 slides. They were auto-timed at 20 seconds per slide and you weren't allowed any words on the slides. So I would imagine that we all took very different approaches in trying to put them together. And I'd be lying if I didn't say it was probably one of the more challenging presentations I've given, but it actually ended up being lots of fun. There were six of us presenting last night. Everyone did such an amazing job. I even said this morning, I was like, you know, now that I think about it, I think all presentations should be Petra Kutcher presentations. You know, you, you really have to think about the story that you want to tell and that the message that you'd like to get across. And so, yeah, for me, the narrative came before the images and then you have to try and pick some images that really highlighted those things that you were trying to say. Yeah, it was a challenge, but it was lots of fun. Well, I guess um, maybe in your kind of topic, which is talking about how we communicate on social media, where actually brevity images and all of those things are actually critically important. I guess it kind of resonated in some way, but picking up on what John said kind of earlier and Miff was talking about in terms of um, traditional media and how they're kind of covering suicide and also these messages of hope and what I've seen at least from you know partial collaboration around chat safe but also broader watching the space is just how young people have stepped in yeah. with hope but also with solutions around what they want to see in suicide prevention so do you want to tell us a little bit about how you kind of engage young people and actually how the research is kind of working with our young people to design solutions I get really excited talking about ChatSafe and the reason for that is because for us, ChatSafe is very much for young people, by young people. And so we co-design and we partner with young people at every step, whether that is in designing programs or projects, whether that's in, you know, co-designing the content that we share on our ChatSafe social media pages. Very recently, to touch on kind of the theme of hope here today, we partnered with some young people. They told us their journey and what they found helpful when they were in their own suicidal crises. And so we've turned that into what we've called the safe space on our ChatSafe website. And I think the reason for that is exactly like John said, we often say that it's really important and it's really protective to talk about, you know, the hope and that recovery is possible and that help is available, but we don't really operationalize what that means. And we don't often give examples of how we might be able to do that, particularly when it comes to young people. And so the safe space section of the ChatSafe website, which only launched on World Suicide Prevention Day this year, 
was really about operationalizing and turning those stories from those young people into examples of hope for other young people. And the goal or the idea there is that when young people are feeling distressed or are kind of in a crisis themselves, they can turn to the safe space and see that other young people have felt like this. Here's the things that they found helpful. Here's the things that helped them get through that journey. So maybe they can too. And so I would echo, you know, sharing stories of hope is what we are told by young people is an important protective factor for them. And, and we're learning how to do that with them on social media because we know that young people are spending a lot of time online. And so ways or avenues of reaching them with helpful and hopeful information is kind of key to what we're doing at GFC. And I understand that for those who are listening to this back, there's a whole panel on ChatSafe on the Friday of the program that people if they're registered will be able to either listen to live if they're there right now or they'll be able to come back to and listen to in the next 12 months. I'm going to do a bit of around the grounds but I'm going to start with you Louise if I can. I think maybe thinking from the early career researcher and the kind of future of our kind of research and practice synergy you know what was one highlight I guess for you from day one and what's something else on the program or at the conference more broadly that you're looking forward to and you want to kind of give a shout out to for people who might be listening? That is a great question. And, you know, like Nick touched on this before, we've spent such a long time looking forward to this. And I was really hoping to meet a bunch of new people at this conference. And it's a real bummer, I guess, that we can't do that. But the highlight from day one, I think, was the friendliness and the open-minded approach that everyone seemed to come to the first day with. There were lots of awesome discussions, lots of awesome questions. And I think that kind of just set the scene for a really collaborative conference. So I think that was the highlight for me. And what I'm looking forward to is really just learning more from the people that are presenting and reaching out, like Miff said, to those that we were hoping to meet in person. I think that's going to be a really nice part for the next three days. And so Miff has told you and also all other early career researchers listening that they can contact her on Twitter or look up her email address and contact her. John, I'm going to go round back to you if I can... Anything kind of stand out for you as a bit of a highlight from day one? And and is there something from your perspective you're kind of looking forward to or hoping will come out of this Congress? Yeah, look, acknowledging exactly what Miff said, I still think we've got a long way to go. At the risk of biting the hand that's feeding me at the moment, Miff, look at the board of directors of IASP. I think there's one non-professor on it, if I read it correctly. And people with living experience shouldn't be grateful about the opportunity. We should be demanding and the equation simply doesn't work without the involvement of people with living experience in terms of what this is all about. So I think it's great to see that that's continuing to open up. Uh, What I thought was great, and I mentioned it before, was hearing Julie Gillard and Beyond Blue talk about the way back because for years, if you'd asked me, what's the one big thing we can do to try and fix you know, the one, you know, you know, you always get that question. What's the one thing, dot, dot, dot. It is, it is post-fention without a doubt. You know, the fact that for our three children, you know, the nurses came around two days a week for three weeks at home and we all just took that for granted. And it's taken us so long to take the same attitude to post-suicide attempts. But the power of that is extraordinary. And I'm so proud that we were able to talk about that. I know we won't be on our own around the world, but I just think that is one of the key elements. You know, having been in hospitals, having been in clinics, 
you walk out and you walk out on your own and the readjustment back to normal life, even after two weeks in a, in a clinic, is extraordinarily hard. You get to institutionalised, I've found, very, very quickly. So I was so pleased to hear that get a great plug and for that to be seen for the game changer in one part suicide prevention that it could be. Great, thanks, John. And if I can just say it publicly on this podcast, I think we've been blessed to have you and also your wife, Lucy, my favourite Brogdon, be so generous with all of your types of experience. So your lived and living experience of suicide, but also your business savvy, your political savvy, your community engagement, your openness to talk to people in the media. And I'm glad that people outside of Australia just get a little bit of a, a snippet of you in this podcast, because I think... We've shifted in the last 10 years in this country because of people like you. So very kind. Thank you. Thank you, John. And so, Miff, same kind of question to you. What was sort of a highlight from yesterday and what's something you're looking forward to other than you and I being on a panel on Friday about research? Always love presenting with you, Jaylee. I think just to go to John's point, that's absolutely why I was talking about power because it's so important to keep challenging. Like we're just getting there, so we have to keep going. So I'm really glad that you made that point too, John. And I think so for me, one of the, you know, we're, I guess in some ways we're quite lucky in Australia that there's such a political focus on suicide prevention as we've talked about and now there's some funding to match that. And one of the gaps I think that will be starting to show kind of follows on from exactly what John was just saying like obviously that's worse in regional areas you know discharge from hospital might mean that you're discharged onto a train that's going to take you five hours to get home and nobody even knows what your housing situation there is so it's magnified again with the you know different levels of advantage and disadvantage and distance but the the area really is around after aftercare and I know that sounds ridiculous but and the Wayback Service is fantastic, but it's in close proximity to um, hospitalisation and Lifeline Australia are doing fantastic work with the Eclipse program, which was originally developed at Dede Hirsch in the US, you know, moving into that space to really understand and to go to your point, Jelly, about all of those stories that we read in for Christine Morgan's report that suicide isn't a one-off event in somebody's life and and this changing nature of suicide and that moving into the after aftercare space is something that we really need to start focusing on to, to look at how people live well with suicide and that that is a possibility. So I guess I'm interested to always be challenged at the conference by listening to people I wouldn't normally have contact with because normally at a face-to-face conference I'd have all my meals and social time with all the people that I usually work with and, and want to see from across the globe and so I always go to to the sessions where I don't know what people are doing and that might really challenge my thinking so I'm really looking forward to that for the rest of the week. Well thank you very much to John, Miff and Louise for joining us on this particular podcast and also thank you to the International Association for Suicide Prevention for creating the podcast to help kind of share some of our thoughts and views and also connecting the content of the conference. Rory and the and IASP have a challenge put down from John Brogdon around looking at the kind of makeup of the, the positions, I guess, on IASP, and I think I welcome them having a look at that. And I think I might finish with an analogy. Last night in the Petra Kutcher, I think her name was Laura. Now, I'm, I'm going to, I may get it right, but she lives in Tasmania and she was talking about building kind of superheroes in rural communities. But she had some really great analogies. And one of them was about 
food and I love food. So it's about this cupcake. Have you ever seen a cupcake that just looks this so perfect on the outside, but when you taste it, it really lets you down? And I guess my final message to people would be let's not put so much effort into things looking pretty or designed on paper in such a pretty, in such a perfect way that the implementation really lets people down, that it doesn't look like, feel like it's what people want and people need. And so let's be a tasty and good looking cupcake going forward in suicide prevention. So thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you to our guests on this podcast and to the IS Congress for bringing us this.